Good morning. I am Pastor Mike. Let's start today by discussing what is truly the last enigma of our universe. And that is the two-time MVP and 2023 NBA champion, Nikola Jokic. Now, you don't know NBA. You're going to get this in a second. See, as an NBA junkie, this dude bewilders me. He is the clearest example in the history of examples of not judging a book by its cover. And that's because, you'll notice in this picture, he is a tall, lumbering, kind of dad bod having, unathletic, seven foot tall white dude, who out of context, you would not believe is a professional athlete, much less a professional basketball player. And yet, this guy right here is the most dominant offensive big man since Shaquille O'Neal. It is bonkers, y'all. <laughs> he can do everything. Unstoppable post moves. He can shoot threes, but above all, his most unique attribute is his ability to pass and to run an offense like no center has ever done before in NBA history. And I actually brought some highlights to give you an idea of what I'm talking about here. So I want you to watch these videos, and I want you to keep in mind a couple things. First of all, they're gonna get more absurd as it goes. Second of all, this guy is seven feet tall. And more importantly, I want you to try to watch the ball over the course of these clips. I'm gonna narrate this for you. Okay, so there he is in the post, right? He's going up, simple pass, cross court. I mean, it's good, but not amazing, right? Right? All right, let's see, let's see, this one. Okay, looking, okay, don't know how he did that, that's cool. Still, still, guys, it's not that amazing. Surely this one won't be ridiculous. Oh, oh my goodness, how did, <laughs> everyone saw that coming, everyone can do that. Okay, this is one of my favorites. <laughs> what? <laughs> I think we got, what, we got two more, maybe? Boop! <laughs> Isn't that wild? <laughs> now, this is like the tour de force. This is amazing. Watch this. Just watch the ball. Try to keep the ball. Keep the ball. There it goes. <laughs> yeah, Pastor Scott can do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yo, is that not crazy? Again. Seven feet tall, unathletic, looks like a dude I might play pickup with, and yet, this guy is a true unicorn, a one of one in NBA history. I have never seen a center who understands, sees, and directs the game, who passes and sets up his teammates like Nikola Jokic does. He is just this selfless human basketball supercomputer who still scores in bunches but only does so as his team needs him to, who seemingly always makes the right play, knowing what to do and what amount and when, how to deploy each of his many skills in the perfect scenario, all for the purpose of team success. And what's so cool about this guy is how this mentality, in turn, infects the teams that he plays for. His teammates move more than anyone I have ever seen in an NBA game. Because what they do is they know that if they make the right cut, if they make the right read, that ball's gonna come between his legs somehow, some way it's gonna get to you and you're gonna get to score. 
So there aren't people standing around watching the Michael Jordans, the James Hardens of the world dribble and shoot. His team is constantly hustling, moving, making the right play. It's an energizing force at the center of the team. And the results speak for themselves. Obviously, they won the NBA championship this year. He's won two MVPs. But more than that, everyone who plays with him just gets elevated. I'm talking the most unknown role players on the Nuggets seem to get five extra points by just showing up on the same day that Jokic did. Altogether, creating a team that truly has a total that is far greater than the sum of its individual parts. And beyond watching him play, it's also just been interesting to observe how he's kind of broken the minds of us as American basketball commentators and fans. So watch people try to make sense of this dude. Because outside of LeBron, in pretty much every way, he has just completely become the antithesis of modern NBA starting. Kobe's, Durant's, Shaq's, even Michael Jordan's, these lethal one-on-one -on -one scorers. This is what we think of when we think about an NBA superstar, someone who crushes their opponent, breaks them down, ISO one-on-one, -on -one, and then scores a bucket over them. Am I right? That's just not what Yoshi does. And it's taken people literally years to embrace or even accept his greatness because he just dominates in this completely alien way compared to what we're used to. And I start here because it's that major idea, that image of a selfless team with this soul that is greater than the sum of its parts that we're going to find at the center of today's section as we continue working through the New Testament book of Ephesians. Because in today's text, the Apostle Paul is going to cast this vision of a community that similarly is an antithesis, is antithetical to other communities that we're used to, to those built on the individual heroics of these superhumans at their core, this image that is countercultural to us as Americans, quite frankly, in our rugged individualism, but also, what I'd posit for you, is absolutely amazing when you really think about what it imagines as the potential for the church as a community in this world. So, that is where we're gonna go today. The first, let's recall where we've been, for Ephesians' first three chapters, Paul has retold the Christ story, laying out, in particular, how through Jesus, God has been restoring all of creation and drawing all of humanity back into this new multi-ethnic divine family that lives under his cosmic lordship in the world. All of which built to this prayer that we explored last week, where Paul, from a prison cell, lays out this sweeping vision of how Christ's story reveals God's love as being the foundation of our cosmos, as being what saturates our universe, which he believes to transform entirely how we see and understand and navigate within it. It's a stunning prayer that marked this hinge moment in the book of Ephesians, this transition moment. Because as we're gonna see today, Paul is gonna go from this prayer and begin chapter four with this word that is often translated as therefore. Using this term, to shift our focus from the retelling of Christ's story to exploring how we are called to live in response to it. How do we live if we truly believe that we live in this love-drenched universe? The shift from theology to practical, ethical instruction that is gonna comprise the entire second half of the letter. 
where Paul is gonna investigate how Jesus's cosmic story transforms everything from work to family to our behaviors, relationships, motivations, everything. And y'all, sometimes Paul's gonna feel like he's reading our mail. It's gonna feel like a gut punch in a couple of the texts that we're gonna cover over the next few weeks, but this is some of the most important and I think beautiful exploration of what it means to live as a disciple in this world that you're gonna find in the New Testament. And we're gonna begin exploring this chunk of text with what he believes must be transformed first when it comes to Christ's story, and that is the everyday life of his church, his community in the world. This place is where Paul believes the story of God must take root first before we should expect to see it anywhere else out there, okay? Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's dive in. We pick up again in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul writes, Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Whew, tongue twister. So Paul begins by urging this community to embrace a Christ-like way of life, one that is worthy, he says, of God's calling for them, which in Hebrew, or the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, was often used to refer to Israel's intended purpose in the world, to be a conduit of God's character as his people. But in a Roman context like Ephesus, this is a term that usually implied a binding legal obligation. So not something that you could just shrug off or choose to do, maybe I feel like it today. No, this is something that if you're going to show up to court, are you going to go to jail, right? Everyone got that? Yeah. Thus... I want you to get into this mind. Thus, what Paul is doing as he starts this section is he is saying, understand that in Christ's story, your community exists for a divine purpose, one that is non-negotiable, and one that will require transformed ways of being human, of living, if you are going to fulfill that obligation, which he then starts expanding upon, beginning with these three central Christian virtues, humility, gentleness, and patience. And these are actually quite subversive, which we kind of miss as Americans today. You see, while patience was upheld as virtuous in Roman culture, humility and gentleness were definitively not. These were not desirable things. You are a Roman citizen. Why is that? Well, that's because in the Greco-Roman world, the entire culture, entire society, was defined by a strict social hierarchy, a status system that was defined to its core by two things, honor and shame. The more you were publicly respected, the more honor you gained, and up the ladder of the social world you climbed. While the more unworthy of public recognition you were, the more shame you accrued, and down you fell. And y'all, this mattered a great deal because your place within this honor and shame hierarchy determined every single aspect of your life. Who you could talk to, your relationships, who you can marry, your opportunities, your wealth, freedom, security, everything was determined by where you felt on this hierarchy, which meant that climbing up this status ladder was truly the most important pursuit of your life. And with that in mind, I need you to understand that humility in such a context was anything but 
desirable. Because what that suggested was demeaning yourself, a demeaning lowliness, to be beneath someone else. Humility was an attribute for slaves, the powerless, those of low status, not honored, powerful Roman individuals. Are y'all tracking with me? And gentleness, being forgiving, living without spite, that just meant you weren't participating in the cutthroat game of social mobility as you should. That implied weakness, a form of weakness that the marginalized were forced to adopt, not something you would choose voluntarily in a Roman culture. All to say, this is an upside-down, anti-Roman way of understanding life priorities and values that Paul just, bam, starts this section off saying, if you are a prisoner of Christ Jesus, then this is how you will live. Whew. However, despite its alienness to these people, Paul also seems to believe that's the only way that one would choose to live after discovering Christ's cosmic story of love. And with that bombshell already dropped, Paul then shifts from this to what he believes is critical to flow out of it, when it becomes the central focus of this section, which is how such upside-down values must shape a community of people pursuing this Christ-like way of life together, in particular producing what he believes are two essential communal elements of the church, that is one, peace, and the second, unity. Peace and unity, Paul believes will inevitably flow out of a community that is living under Christ's lordship and that is growing in its capacity for humility, gentleness, patience, and love. And it kind of makes sense when you think of it. Because both of these ideas, peace and unity, both connect back to that core argument of Ephesians that Paul's been laying out painstakingly so far. That through Jesus, God is reuniting humanity into this new community comprised of every human tribe coexisting peacefully together around one transcendent shared principle of identity and purpose, the lordship of Christ. This divine family united unity peacefully as one body with one spirit, hope, baptism, worshiping one God as he lays down here. One, 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 one. You can feel the repetition in this passage, right? For Paul, that divine oneness must define the life of Christ's church. However, and this is critical, for Paul, unity does not mean uniformity. He continues in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except for that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Everyone got that part? Yeah, no, we'll come back to that in a second. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of what? Service. So the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach what? Unity, Unity in the faith and a knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of of Christ. So first, Paul does the seemingly strange detour into a citation and exploration of what is Psalm 68, 
which imagines God as king descending from his throne to defend the poor by humbling these proud human empires opposing him, which he defeats, all of which ends with this procession of defeated prisoners as God victoriously receives the spoils of war. It is an intense psalm, pretty crazy, right? But here's what's interesting. I'm not gonna bore you guys. This is a Bible study thing we spend more time on. But here's what's interesting. You see, go read Psalm 68, and what you're gonna find is that Paul subtly changes it, which for us as non-Hebrews, we're like, what? You can't change the Bible, but he does. He does. Because here, unlike in Psalm 68, how Paul depicts it is God comes as king to give away, not receive the spoils of his victory, right? In Paul's version of the psalm, God comes down victoriously so that he can divest himself of what came with his victory over his enemies. And this is clever because you see, Paul's using this psalm in this really cool way to summarize the upside down nature of Jesus' story. How Christ, God's victorious king, came to us not to claim his due, but rather to selflessly give gifts to the captives, to the needy, to those too defeated to claim pride in their life anymore. For Paul, that's the gospel. In humility, God joined himself to the human condition, to humanity in gentleness. Jesus revealed how to be human as God intended. With patient, self-sacrificial suffering, Christ confronted evil and death on the cross and then through resurrection declared God's enemies defeated, inaugurating a new kingdom, this cosmic kingdom of peace that Paul has been inviting us to imagine this whole letter. And in that story, Paul believed that the church had a divine purpose, a divine calling to be Christ's embodiment in the world, to join together as a self-sacrificial community led by Jesus where each member after receiving the unmerited favor and grace of God responded to that gift by mirroring it in the world, by giving away their own God-given gifts, strength, experiences, and attributes, not for their own purposes, not to rise up some corporate ladder, some status system. No, they put these attributes, these God-given gifts down to build something bigger than themselves. That's how Paul is imagining the Christ story becoming entrenched within a human community. Now, brief tangent. You probably noticed that Paul mentions five specific church roles here, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, which are all connected to gifts of leading, equipping, and teaching. You've probably heard of these. It's called the five-fold ministries. Anyone else? Yeah. A lot of books written about these. I'm not going to spend much time on them, but I just need you to understand that for today, in this service, these are not intended to be an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts or church roles, as they are often conveyed as. No, Paul is clear, both in Ephesians elsewhere, but also throughout his other letters, that there are way more gifts and roles within the church communities than these. No, see, these five are listed specifically because of the context from which Paul is writing from in Ephesians. That is, as we have mentioned multiple times, where is Paul right now? He's in prison. And what's looming? His execution. 
we know that within a year of this letter, at most, Paul is going to be dead. In other words, Paul's highlighting the specific roles that he believes are needed for guiding the church after he, the one who planted this community, is gone. It makes sense that he would highlight these in particular, give them extra focus, because he knows that there's going to need to be a new generation of leaders to come to equip God's people because he ain't going to be able to do it anymore. He'll track him with me on that. All to say, I just don't want you guys to read this and be like, well, I'm not an apostle, an evangelist, a prophet, a pastor, or a teacher, so I guess I have nothing to do here in this here church. That's not the point Paul's making. And more broadly, we could still read a passage like this and see what Paul believes our intended gifts are meant to be for. See, as each member of the church plays their part, Christ knits them together into this community equipped with every single gift of our multifaceted, diverse human condition. All the gifts of human beings that were once tribalized and broken apart and used for our own individual purposes come together and get redirected towards one central goal, one calling, not my agenda, but the building of Christ's peaceful kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. For Paul, that's what it means to be the church, which means that the church isn't meant to create uniformity within itself by erasing humanity's diverse conditions. No, diversity is meant to be the church's greatest strength at achieving its calling in the world. No, the church is meant, according to Paul, to find unity in diversity, subsumed under the lordship of Christ, which is a very different concept and this idea of just erasing it so we can all be homogeneous, the same person cookie-cuttered throughout the human condition. More so, Paul believes, as he concludes, that this is essential for the church's survival in the world as it tries to live out God's calling. Pick up in verse 14 where Paul concludes, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in what? Love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You see, for Paul, without diversity, the church remains spiritually immature in the world, like an adrift boat tossed back and forth by the shifting seas that it was called to navigate. And this is so wise. You see, I think Paul understood that the church will always grow in some direction. That's just the nature of human community. However, without maturity, without guidance, without intentionality, it's more likely than not going to grow with, not against, the surrounding currents of its world, shaped by this world's values, not Christ's upside-down ones. That left to its own devices, the church would drift into pride, not humility, a thirst for power, not patience, hostility towards the other, not gentleness. Has anyone seen that in the church? It's as true today as it was then. 
Too often, our world's factionalism, tribalism, bleeds into the church, shattering our peace, our unity, over major and minor disagreements alike. It's a constant temptation of our humanity that we let just drip in, 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 if we are not aware of it. This is how we as human beings operate in this world when left to our own devices. If you don't believe me, there was actually a study, and this is going to blow your mind. There was a study completed during COVID about what unites people during times of disorientation, crisis, upheaval, and stress. And you know what it found were the two strongest factors in uniting people together. Do want to guess? Anger. Anger. Disagreement. Jealous. Oh, those are good. Tragedy. It wasn't politics. It wasn't family. It wasn't ethnicity. It wasn't religion. It wasn't shared humanitarian goals. No, it was shared complaint. Uniting around a shared enemy or scapegoat, someone that we can talk bad about, hate, oppose, or reject. That, more than anything else, united people into a common cause. How alarming is that, y'all? And I have seen that factionalism bleed into the church so many times. And never once has it helped the church be more like Jesus. Communities formed around that kind of unity don't produce peace. They produce division, resentment, exclusion, injustice, oppression, violence. That's why Paul urges the church to pursue Christ-centered unity in diversity because the church needs spiritual maturity to live into its calling. And that doesn't form in echo chambers. No, that comes from Christ working within a diverse, faithful body of people seeking truth in love, speaking truth in love, for one shared purpose, which is mutual growth. A people so committed to each other in Jesus and his upside-down way of life that they can remain united with their differences and faithful to their calling no matter what storms may come. That, y'all, that's the church. And that image of the church's potential just enamored me all week. This community where all these different peoples, each playing their unique part, come together and don't just tolerate diversity, but they rather they celebrate it. They rely upon it. A community that through the Spirit's leading deploys the entirety of human beings' talents to one goal, loving God, loving neighbor, better than they could do on their own. All while living under one united family centered around the Lordship of Christ. Can I get an amen? That awes me. That's what made me think of Jokic, which, yes, I understand, makes it sound like I'm comparing him to Jesus, but we're going to move past that. <laughs> this kind of selfless, united, moving as one body in the world, achieving more than we could have ever imagined on our own. That's amazing. And yet, I am struck by how rarely the church answers this calling. Too often, the church is just as fractured as everything else. Worse, too often it actively pushes against this reality, giving into humanity's fallen tribal impulses to erase diversity, to seek uniformity because it's easier. Even though the church suffers as it prunes out of itself the exact person whose experience would help it see a collective blind spot, as it prunes out of itself the exact person whose wisdom would allow it to faithfully navigate some new struggle, as it prunes 
out of itself, the very eyes that it needs to see itself clearly and become more like Christ. And I get it. Unity and diversity under Jesus is much harder than conformity. It requires confronting and navigating differences, quite frankly, differences that I often loathe in other people. It requires dealing with past, present, and future wounds, which who likes doing that? It requires navigating serious areas of discomfort as Christ glues together our disparate parts, which is not fun, and yet it's worth it. And Paul urges us to recognize that we need each other to mature together into the body of Christ as God intended. What's amazing is that we don't have to do this by willing it into existence ourselves. No, what Paul gets at here is that we are simply called to foster a community with humility, gentleness, patience, a willingness to change, love. And then from there, Christ is going to do the growing. Christ will take that offering of ours and he will produce a community with a sum total greater than its parts. One that can actively achieve feats of service that to the outside world make no dang sense when they do the actual math of our community. Does anyone else want to be a part of a church like that in the world? Yep. Am I the only one? No. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. But y'all, to do so, we all have to play our part. The church can't live into this vision with just a few Michael Jordans taking every shot, carrying the whole load. That's not building up Christ's diverse body. And yet that's often what happens. And I'm just going to be blunt that's because many of us, including myself, in plenty of seasons, do not get me wrong, many of us know that we have gifts, time, talents, treasures that we could put into play for Christ's kingdom, for the church, to serve other people, and we just don't. And there are many reasons for that, some more valid than others. Sometimes it's because of wounds, fears, and insecurities about not being good enough or having enough to offer. Sometimes it's related to church-caused trauma. Sometimes you just don't know where to start. And y'all, if you fall into any of those buckets, I need you to hear me. I don't have a single word of challenge for you this morning. Just the invitation to meet with Pastor Scott, Lori, or myself so we can help you start to heal and we can equip you to do your part in the community. Because that's my calling. That's our job. Just reach out. However, let's be self-honest. Most of us don't for far less noble reasons. Things like apathy, self-centeredness, pride, that internal voice of scarcity, they're my time, talents, and treasure. Or how about this? For me personally, this is embarrassing. For years, I refused to give or serve simply because being told that I was obligated to do anything made me petulant. <laughs> Don't tell me what to do. It triggered that American hyper-individualism. That part of me that prefers to think that all bonds to others are optional, as if we don't ever accrue obligations to others, to our community, to our partners. That part of me that always wants to wait for a better option rather than commit and take part in the community that God's planted me in right here and now. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Yep. And here's the thing, regardless of the reason, I'm not trying to shame you. I need you to hear me. We all struggle with this. This is very universal. But I also need you to hear me, that the church needs you. It needs your gifts, that contribution that only you can provide. To reach our potential, we need you to spiritually mature, to grow up and take up your place and your role in the kingdom of God and Christ's body. 
making coffee, leading worship, building ramps, feeding people, going to Guatemala, Uganda, sharing your experience, strength, and hope over coffee with broken people, teaching kids or adults, fostering community and growth groups, greeting the Sunday guests who arrived just to get a smile in this world. There are so many ways to give your gifts away and to take part in something bigger than yourself. What Christ is doing in the world, you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to have it all together. All you need is to bring the gifts that God has already given you and to lay them down in love, in humility, with patience, with gentleness, with a willingness to let Christ use them for something bigger than yourself. That's it. No more, no less. We surrender it, and Jesus does the rest. And y'all, that's good news. Am I right? So as we worship together, and as we close, where do you need to take a step forward in faith to serve? Where do you need to give back what you've been given? Where do you need to remember that your life is not about you? It's about his kingdom and his glory and seeing his will done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.